It's Window Nation's semi-annual sale, and it's a big deal. Right now, get 50% off all windows along with no interest for five years plus bonus savings when you schedule a consult today. If your windows leak, get foggy or hot, or you're paying high utility bills, that's a big deal. With Window Nation's semi-annual sale, you can replace your windows and save a big deal, too. Schedule a no-obligation in-home estimate now. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them. And easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Get lost. No, 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 no. You're crazy. Get lost. We say that phrase all the time, don't we? Get lost. It's not a big deal. At least not anymore. Think about what it meant the first time that someone ever said to someone, get lost. Have you ever been lost? I was. I was five years old. I was in the middle of the woods. No cell phone. No tricks on how to get home. There's no signs. There was no adult in the situation. I thought I was going to die in the woods. I was lost. And so think of how hurtful that was the first time that someone said to another person, get lost. Now, uh, you're crazy. Get get lost. doesn't mean anything. And today, we're going to talk about another phrase that has lost its value over time. But when I say it today, in this context, I mean it to the fullest extent. And most serious extent. Today, be careful what you wish for. Hello, I'm Vince Quinn, and today on Upon Further Review, we're going to look into how a lifelong dream for a Philadelphia Eagles fan became the team's deepest scar. And it starts in such an innocent way. It's a thumbs up on the side of the road from a young boy in Shenandoah. And that boy is named Jerry Woolman. And he's on his way to an Eagles game. Or at least so he hopes. He plans to hitchhike the 100 miles to get himself to a Philadelphia Eagles game. And he does. He was a diehard fan from the start. And couldn't have been happier to make that trip. And then we flash forward just a few years to when Jerry is 24 years old. And he's ready to leave Shenandoah 
not just for an Eagles game, but to live his life in a fuller, richer city environment. And so he debates with his wife, where should we go? Should we go to New York? Should we go to Philadelphia? And they can't decide. And what they agree upon is something that makes a lot of sense from the little bit that we know about Jerry already. They say, we'll find a hitchhiker on the road. Wherever that hitchhiker wants to go, that's where we're going to move. And that hitchhiker changes the course of Eagles history because he wants to go to Washington, D.C. And so Jerry Woolman goes with him. And him and his wife, they find a small apartment, they settle, and he's working uh, at a paint shop for a little bit, and she's got a job, and they're, they're cooking on a hot plate. It's not a glamorous environment, but it doesn't take long for it to become one. Because Jerry Woolman slowly but surely builds a real estate empire. It starts with a little duplex, and then another, and then another, and then it becomes a big development, and you get office buildings. And so by the time that Jerry Woolman is 36 years old, he's built thousands of apartments. He owns over a dozen office buildings, and he's got the $5.5 million that he needs to buy the Philadelphia Eagles. And in 1964, he makes that happen. Which is a dream scenario. What kid doesn't grow up if you're not thinking of, well, I want to play on the team and win Super Bowls. You want to own the team. Have it be a part of your day-to-day and be able to make all of those moves that we dream about making at home to this day. That's what Jerry Woolman wanted as a kid, and that's what he was buying then and there in 1964. But the problem is that he didn't appreciate what it entails to actually be the owner of a sports franchise. Think about it. You're dealing with concessions and tickets, and you've got marketing restrictions. You've got television broadcast rights, radio broadcasting. You have to hire and fire those broadcasters. All of these different things, on top of running the team and picking the coach and all this good stuff, you're responsible for everything And Woolman is blindsided by all of this. He's just thinking of this little kid with his thumbs up trying to get to the game. And and so when he's asked about what it's like to be a new owner in the NFL, Woolman says, At first I had the feeling I was getting a new toy. But that feeling is definitely behind me. Suddenly it dawned on me that I own tremendous obligation to the thousands of people who follow the Eagles. I owe it to them to put a winning team on the field and a winning team I am going to put on the field. Therefore, I cannot make the mistake of picking the wrong man as head coach. So he's clueless. And now he's saying, okay, I know nothing about this and I'm going to need someone that properly covers up all of my deficiencies. He is a real estate magnate. He is worth millions and millions of dollars as a young man. So the business side he can handle. But again, football, as much as he is a fan of the game, to understand the intricacies and the deep ins and outs, he needs that good coach. And so Woolman makes a decision that rocks the franchise and the city 
He hires Joe Kuharik. Or does he? Because there's an interesting theory that floats around behind all of this. There's, there's a shady, shadowy cloud that hangs over the hiring of Joe Kuharik. And it's that Jerry Woolman did not make this hire. But Pete Rozelle did. Pete Rozelle, the acting commissioner of the National Football League at that time, had been good friends with Kuharik. When Kuharik was a coach at the University of San Francisco, Pete Rozelle was there. He worked in public relations. He was friends with Kuharik. And then you consider Kuharik's coaching history. So on the surface, yes, he might seem like a good coach and a legitimate candidate because at the University of San Francisco, he had an undefeated season in 1951. He was 9-0. and He coached with the Cardinals. He was a scout in the NFL. He also was coach of the year in 1955, and he was only 38 years old while he did it. So there's a lot of good factors here, typical boxes that you want to check off. Joe Kuharik has fit a lot of them, but then you've got to look at the downside here, Joe Kuharik was not coaching football the previous year in 1963. He was in the league office. He was a supervisor for referees. And it was a job that Pete Rozelle gave him. It's a job that Rozelle gave him after Kuharik was the first ever coach, and still to this day, the only head coach in Notre Dame football's history to have a losing record. And he was there for four years prior to his year of supervising officials for the NFL. So, yes, he has all these nice accolades, but he hasn't had a winning season in a very long time as an NFL head coach. It's actually been since 1955, and On top of that, you also have to consider some of the other names that were linked to this coaching search for the Eagles. Paul Brown, who is a living legend at that time. He's been part of a dynasty with Otto Graham. He's on the market. Also, Otto Graham is in the conversation to be the head coach of the Eagles. Norm Van Brocklin, who had led the Eagles to their championship just four years ago. He's connected to the coaching job. And instead, Joe Kuharik gets it, the commissioner's buddy. And whether or not that meeting actually happens, where Kuharik and Roselle and Woolman are all sitting down in this conversation of, hey, well, Joe should be your guy. You need a football guy. You're a business guy. Here it is. Even if that didn't happen, the fans damn sure felt that it did. And it immediately gets worse. Because Kuharik is a disciplinarian. He is a big ego. He's not going to deal with these superstar players who act out and have too much personality. He's got a strict system, and he wants you to play in that, and that's it. And so three weeks into his tenure as head coach of the Eagles, Joe Kuharik trades Tommy McDonald. Tommy McDonald, a wide receiver that helped the Eagles win a championship in 1960. A guy that the fans loved. A guy that ultimately ended up in the Hall of Fame. He's traded to Dallas for two linemen and a kicker. A 35-year-old kicker, by the way. 
Sonny Jurgensen, a guy who in 1961, he threw in a 14-game in a season in 1961, Sonny Jurgensen threw 3,723 yards, 32 touchdowns, and 24 interceptions. Think about that. That's 1961. Typically, guys have more interceptions than touchdowns at this time, and to have yardage like that is just amazing. He gives you that season in 61, and yes, he's injured in 62 and 63, and his receivers are getting injured all around him, but he's still going to be a good player. He still shows signs of being efficient and effective at the quarterback position, and he's not all that old. Kuharik trades him to Washington. So now before the season's even started, his very first season, which is under questionable circumstance, he's gotten rid of two very popular and could have been foundational players for his team. He gets Norm Sneed instead of Sonny Jurgensen. And you know what? Here's what happens when Jurgensen is traded from the Eagles. He makes three Pro Bowls and an All-Pro and the Hall of Fame. That's it. He's just a Hall of Fame quarterback that plays till he's 40. No big deal. Norm Sneed, he has seven years with the Eagles. He gets 111 touchdowns, 124 interceptions. He makes one Pro Bowl appearance. It's really not that good. And compared to Jurgensen, it's a joke, but it's a player-for-player swap, and the Eagles have clearly lost out. This is before his first season even takes place. And Woolman doesn't know any better because he's a real estate guy. So as a fan, you'd have to be pretty upset going into this 1964 season. Well, that is, unless you're Jerry Woolman, who couldn't be happier about it. When the first day of training camp comes around, he's out there and catching passes. When the first day of the season comes along and Jurgensen and McDonald are not there, he's sitting on the bench and yucking it up with the players. He's having a great time. He's living that little kid's dream and not thinking about the greater consequences. So that first year under Kuharik, the Eagles are 6-8. and eight. Now they were 2-12 and 12 the year before, so it is clearly an improvement. But he does it without all these star players. And as they're approaching the end of the season, Joe Kuharik is on a four-year contract. So he has three years left. Jerry Woolman, so enamored by catching passes and sitting on the bench and seeing a losing, what would ultimately be a 6-8 and eight season, decides to forget the three years left of Kuharik's contract and give him a 15-year deal, 15 years for his 6-8 and eight season. He's out of his damn mind. This guy's a totalitarian in Kuharik. He's sending around the good players to other teams, and they're teams that are in the division. Meanwhile, Woolman says, I feel with the personal changes Joe has made and with the leadership he has provided, he has this team going in the right direction. Boy, was he wrong. Woolman's mind was elsewhere. Because while he bought the team... And yes, he is the Eagles' acting owner. He's still in real estate. He didn't give that up to run the team. It's, a, it's still, as, as way, it's a toy, as he talked about before. And what he's got his mind on in 1964, as Kuharik's tearing the team apart, 
He's thinking of building the second tallest building in the world, the John Hancock Building in Chicago, secondary only to the Empire State Building in New York. So now the 6-8 and eight season in three years is, is now, there's 15 years left for Joe Kuharik as he enters his second year with the Eagles in 1965. He's the coach and the general manager, and you know he's not firing himself. Now do things get better? In a sense, because in 65, Kuharik drafts Otis Taylor and Gary Garrison. Now Taylor and Garrison are both wide receivers. Garrison's drafted in the sixth round, and ultimately he's a four-time Pro Bowler. Taylor is drafted in the 15th round. He becomes a two-time Pro Bowler, a two-time All-Pro player, and three times he's a champion. But not a single snap for either of those players is with the Eagles. They go to play in the AFL instead. So they go to a whole different league. He misses out entirely, even though he made good draft picks, and so... The team doesn't really progress at all. In fact, they go backwards a game. They go from 6-8 and eight to 5-9. and nine. But meanwhile, Kuharik has 14 years left on this deal. He's got a losing record. It's insanity. And one person that thinks all of this is insane is a very surprising partner. Because when Woolman is in Washington, D.C., and he's building his real estate empire, he makes... An intriguing friend, one Ed Snyder. And Ed Snyder happens to not only be a business advisor to Woolman, but he is one of the co-owners of the Philadelphia Eagles when he purchases the team in 64. Snyder owns 7% of the team. And he's in charge of being the executive vice president. He's the treasurer for the Eagles. And he didn't get along with Kuharik even a little bit. Which, when you think about Kuharik as this stodgy, stubborn mule, this egotistical guy, and you remember everything, all of the stories about Ed Snyder, it's not all that surprising. But the problem is that Woolman's already a business guy. Snyder is also a business guy at this stage. And Kuharik is your football guy. So Snyder gets pushed aside here. And meanwhile... While he's not going to be working for the Eagles so much anymore, Woolman is doing a good thing, and he is doing it with Snyder. They're beginning the process of bringing the Philadelphia Flyers into town in 1965. They're building the spectrum. They're putting that $12 million into it, and soon they're going to have a team in town. But that's all sidetracking from, again, this important thing that when Woolman bought the team, he would said he would pay he said he would pay attention to. He said he would bring a winner into town. He said he would care. Because he understood that there were a lot of fans like him and what he was as a little kid and what he still is to that day. But business came first. He's thinking about stadiums. He's thinking about real estate in sports. And so in the third season of Woolman's ownership and Kuharik's tenure as the head coach, you see a similar pattern. Maxie Bon is traded, and Maxie Bon is a pretty good player. He's 27 years old. He's playing the linebacker position. He's coming off of three straight Pro Bowl appearances and an all-pro selection. He gets traded. 
Why in the world would you trade a 27-year-old star linebacker that's hitting consecutive Pro Bowls and doesn't have a serious injury history? Oh, it's ego. You'd better believe it. Irv Cross, a cornerback for the team who was 26 and had also the past two seasons been to the Pro Bowl, he gets traded before the year. Both of them go to the Rams in separate deals. But Joe Kuharik, he he's got a culture that he wants to build. He has a system that he thinks will work. He is the type of player that needs to shut up, stand in line, and follow his orders because Joe knows everything. Now, the weird thing is in all of this, as you look back, it might seem that in 1966, Kuharik's right. Getting rid of these players has been the right thing, and he is building the right team with his culture because that year, in 1966, they go 9-5. And again, this is after Maxie Bond and Irv Cross are traded. These are guys with multiple Pro Bowls on the defensive side of the ball. Just gone. In their primes. Gone. But you look back, and when you really dig into it, the whole thing is a complete mess. Because first off, Norm Snead is an awful quarterback. He's replacing Sonny Jurgensen, and he's just not doing the job well. Uh, it's so bad to the fact that by the time it gets to week five, Kuharik starts doing something that happens throughout the season. He starts having quarterback competitions in the game. Week five, Norm Snead goes nine for 22 with 110 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. That same game, another quarterback by the name of King Hill, he has nine completions for 17 attempts with 62 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. There's no injury to this game. It's just splitting time for seeing what the hot hand's going to bring. Now, Snead will keep the starting job, but again, in Week 9, Snead goes 1-for-8 with no yards, no interceptions, and no touchdowns. King throws nine passes in that game. He goes 4-for-9 and gets 55 yards. It's literally an infinite improvement over Snead and his zero yards. Week 10, you're seeing the same thing. So this is three games out of 10 in a season where the the quarterbacks are basically splitting reps. And then by week 10, they've finally seen enough and Snead's benched after that. So for the last four games of the year, Snead doesn't play, but... When it gets to week 14, you see another quarterback competition, and a guy named Jack Concanon is taking a couple of snaps, as he did in weeks 12 and 13 as well. So you have quarterback competitions in games through the entire year, and overall the quarterback play is absolutely abysmal. They're 179 for 378 combined. It's a 47.4 completion percentage. 14 touchdowns and 22 interceptions. Frankly, they suck passing the ball. They're awful. But meanwhile, they're a 9-5 and team. And you think, how did this possibly happen? Well, in part, they did have a good running attack that year. It was one of the top in the league. I believe they were 5th in yards and 2nd in rushing touchdowns. And their run defense was particularly strong as well, even though as a whole unit they were 11th in the league in points allowed. So that was good enough in a weird, fluky way to get them to 9-5. and five. It was second place in their conference, and they ended up playing a game called the Playoff Bowl, which if you haven't heard of the Playoff Bowl, and I, I can't imagine why, it was a game that was played 
between the second-place team of each conference. They didn't have a full playoffs at that time. There were only 15 teams in the NFL. So they would just have the second-place teams play a second-place game called the Playoff Bowl. And the Eagles lost that under Joe Kuharik. Now, while the 9-5 and five result is surprising, and you would think is the more notable thing of this whole stretch of Eagles history in 1966, what's more important is a loss to Dallas, one of those five losses, and it's week five of the season. The team loses 56-7 to in Dallas. And when asked after the game of what went wrong, Joku Harrick gives a very peculiar response. He says, A missed block here, a missed assignment there, it adds up. A missed block here, a missed assignment there, it adds up. Are you crazy? You lost 56 to 7, Joe! 56 to 7! How can you possibly say that? That's how the fans felt at this time. And you know what? They had every right. This was an instance where Kuharik emphasized one of his absolute worst qualities. He was a terrible communicator. And he was a guy that, because of that, fans didn't think he was smart. And oh, by the way, everyone still thinks it's a conspiracy by the commissioner to get him that job because they're buddies. So all of these things are piling up. And to give you an example of how bad of a speaker... Kuharik was. There was a time where they asked him about a new rule that the competition committee wanted to add to the playbook. That the competition committee wanted to add to the playbook. He said, I'm in favor of the rule, but I'm against its enforcement. What? And then on top of that, uh, when he traded Sonny Jurgensen for Norm Sneed, and again, that was an awful deal, and it's, it's a complete disgrace that that ever happened. He said, trading for a good quarterback is quite rare, but not unusual. I don't think you know what rare means, Joe. I don't think you know what unusual means, Joe. One of those two is mixed up because it can't be rare and not unusual at the same time. And then on top of that, he would mess up simple phrases all the time. And when you run through the list of them, he seems kind of batty. For example... That half was a horse of a different fire department is an actual phrase that a grown man who was a coach of the Philadelphia Eagles said during his tenure. He also said, when we get to that bridge, we'll jump. Fans certainly wanted to. Another one, and this one is just unbelievable, let dead dogs sleep. The guy just couldn't speak. And so here he is, he's this egotistical guy, he's throwing his stars around all over the place, he's dismissive of losses that are 56-7 to against a team in the conference, against a team that he traded Tommy McDonald to. And you have to wonder, what the hell is this guy doing? Because the 9-5 and five is not what it actually looks like. Again, the quarterback play is all scrambled. There's no consistency there. The team doesn't look all that good for a 9-5 and five team. Think of Nick Foles in that 27-2 and two season. It's a mirage. And that's what you're getting here with Joe Kuhark. And so we go to the fourth season in 1967 with 13. 13- years left on Kuharik's deal. And he's got a losing record. 
Because despite going nine and five, well, he was five and nine the year before that, and the year before that, he's six and eight. So he's three games under five hundred despite that nine and five season. He's got thirteen years left on his deal. And the team finishes six, seven, and one. They take a big step backwards, which is predictable because there was no way they were going to win that many games when they weren't a sustainably good team. The rushing game dropped from being fifth in yards and second in touchdowns to 66 to 14th in yards and 12th in touchdowns in 1967. They allowed the 15th most points in the league in 67, which at that point they had added a 16th team, and they were second to last place in points allowed. And they still looked better than what they should have been because they allowed the 15th most points out of 16 teams. To be 6-7-1 is amazing. So you see all of this, and you see the, the star players moving around and how bad the team looks and how the fans don't like him and think he's a garbage hire and all this stuff, and you wonder, where's Jerry Woolman? Where is the fan that bought this team that couldn't have been happier to scamper along the sidelines and catch passes in training camp? Where is this guy? Well, everything's falling apart for him. Because as he's trying to build the John Hancock building, they have an interesting problem. The building is supposed to be 99 floors. And what's going to happen naturally when you build something, the ground beneath it is going to adjust. So when they're building this structure that's 99 floors, they have a general idea of, okay, based on estimations and this weight that we're putting and the size of the base of the building, it should have this impact on the ground once we get to 99 floors. Well, what they thought was going to happen at 99 floors of completing this building, it happened at 20. 20! So basically... A fifth of the way done the building. They had the same impact on the ground that they expected at 100% completion. This is a huge disaster. They have to stop building that very second. Everything gets shut down. And Jerry Woolman, this guy who was this interesting, sort of eccentric millionaire that had bought the team, well, now he's losing tons of money. It's estimated that he loses $20 million in 1967 because of this building deal. And he's got other things going on. He's building the spectrum. He's got the flyers that he's got an ownership stake of. And and a bunch of other small businesses and real estate ventures and, and office buildings. He's all over the place, and now he's losing money at a catastrophic rate. So he's preoccupied. He's not caring about Joe Kuharik. He believes in Kuharik because he's going to have 12 years left after that 6-7-1 season in 66. There's plenty of time to figure it out. Joe knows what he's doing. He's getting the right players in, and dear God, this guy is clueless. I mean, how can you possibly... Sit there and let this happen as a fan. You know, you just wonder, where was Jerry Woolman? The fans were certainly starting to have their full. I'll tell you that. Because when it gets to 1968, it starts to become almost a, a, a movement. It, it's really, it's, think of the 
urban spring movement of however many years ago. It's it's a time where sports fandom unifies in such a real and powerful way within the city. It, it feels political. Buttons are passed out to fans in 1968 that say, Joe must go. And you think, oh, well, that's cute, and it's not so bad in the long term. Well, imagine this. As they're starting to say, Joe must go, the team loses their first game in 68. Then they lose the next one in the row in two, and then 0 and 3, and 0 and 4. And 0-5, and 0-6, and, and 7-8, and, and 8, and 9, and 10. They go 0-11. Oh 0-11 and 11. Oh and 11 in 1968. Kuharik has just rotted this team to the core. They have absolutely nothing left. Okay, well, they do have the draft. That's one of the beauties of losing, right? You can always say, well, we're in last place, but at least we have the first pick in the draft. Who's that top guy? Well, in 1968, the top guy that's going to be coming out of the draft is O.J. Simpson. And obviously, none of the legal stuff, the murders and whatever, none of that's happened at this time. There's no taint on O.J. Simpson. He's just a star player that's going to get ready to have a Hall of Fame career. And so Eagles fans see that, and they're salivating because despite everything being so terrible and Kuharik getting all of these good players and shipping them out of town and losing now all of these games because of it and because of this culture and the fact that he, as much as as he was stubborn and he had been around the game, he just wasn't a good coach. He wasn't a good general manager. But you had OJ until you went in week 12. And then you're a little tight in the chest because it's not a guaranteed thing now. There are other teams that have only one win, have only two wins. So it's not guaranteed. Okay, well, you'll probably lose next week. You're 0-11. Nope! The Eagles beat the Saints, and now they're 2-11. and And so O.J. Simpson is gone! You're not getting that guy. To sit through 11 straight weeks of losing and say, well, at least we have the top draft pick. We have that to look forward to. To have that wiped away by two meaningless, useless wins at the end of this season, I would be so pissed off. And if you don't think the fans were in 1968, well, boy, you're wrong. Those fans weren't just angry. They were angry in a way that you will never forget. It's December 15th, 1968. It's 28 degrees at Franklin Field in Philadelphia. The Eagles are playing the Vikings. They're 2-11. O.J. Simpson is gone. Sonny Jurgensen is gone. Tommy McDonald is gone. Maxie Baugh is gone. Irv Cross is also gone. There are buttons that are all around the crowd, and they say Joe must go. There's articles that have been written in the paper, 
and they say the same song. It's the Joe Must Go. There's planes that have been flying over Franklin Field, and they say Joe Must Go. The mayor has spoken about the sad state of the Eagles and how it's tarnishing the city. What's been going on because of Jerry Woolman and his obsession with the real estate, treating the team like a toy, and Joe Kuharik and his ego and how he's ripped this team apart. And he says that same song that Joe must go. And at halftime of that game, with a 7-7 to score as both teams walked to the locker rooms, and a Santa that had not been signed up for that day trotted onto the field. You know what the fans did when they saw this tyrant that could not be fired, that could not be removed from peaceful protest? Well, they attacked. They waged war with a snowball. Or a couple hundred. Damn right they were pissed off. And it was a day that will live in Eagles and Philadelphia infamy. And you know what the craziest thing about all of this is? Quark doesn't get fired because of it. He still has a job with the Eagles despite a 2-11 season. It's another for his career and a terrible losing record with the team. He's gotten rid of all of these stars. He's gotten worse and worse since that 9-5 and five season. And he still doesn't get fired. What the hell is going on with Jerry Woolman? Where is he? Well, he's traveling the globe. Well, he's in New York. And he's in L.A. And he even goes out to Germany. And he's singing his own song. Please give me money. The problems with the John Hancock building, this ambitious real estate project, ended up being his undoing. And no one was willing to give him money to buy back into the game. So he wasn't paying attention to any of this. He's trying to save his business. And in a way, he wants to save the money so he can save the Eagles for himself. But he's not actually watching the team. He's not paying enough attention to what's going on because you think he would see the snowballs, he would see the buttons, he would see the planes, he would see the articles, and he'd see the truth. Just fire this guy. Joe must go. But he didn't understand all this responsibility. He didn't understand what he had wished for, and he put this black eye on the city. And we still deal with it to this very day. It's Jerry Woolman's fault. Joe must go, but don't forget about Jerry. So what happens after that season is that the dream dies. After going around and asking for all these loans and getting denied at every turn, Woolman has to save his real estate business, whatever way he possibly can. And so he has to sell his share in the Eagles. And it's a sad, desperate thing, too, because you do still see he does have that fan in him. He still has that young hitchhiking boy in him. When it gets to the point where he's selling the team to Toast, and it's something like a 14-hour negotiation between his lawyers and Toast's lawyers in some conference room somewhere, they write a clause into the contract that if within 90 days, for some reason, Woolman can get the funds together to keep the team, then he can buy it back. And there's no questions asked about it. And of course, that doesn't happen. So the team goes to Toast, and then, after selling the team, after 90 days, and months and months and months after Santa's been hit with snowballs, and 
the most infamous event of sports in this city has ever happened takes place, Joe Kuharik is finally fired. Thanks, Jerry. So what happens after that fact? What happens to these two characters, these two guys that in such a strong, crazy, and passionate way destroyed the city, destroyed the team? Well, one year after his firing, Kuharik was diagnosed with cancer. And he was only given, you know, maybe a year to live. He ends up living for another 10. And a few years after the diagnosis and after the heat has died down, he actually becomes a scout for Dick Vermeil in 1977, which, for the Eagles, is a good time to be a part of the team. They're on the rise. And for Woolman, he's able to rebuild his real estate cachet. And it actually gets to the point for him in 1998 where he tries to buy another NFL team, the Washington Redskins. And he gets beat out by a young millionaire with all the money to burn and an intense fandom. It's a guy just like him, Dan Snyder. Funny how that happens. But the craziest, strangest thing about all of this, after the fact... In 1981, the Eagles are in the Super Bowl. Dick Vermeil's coaching the team, and in the stands, as a spectator, a regular guy that bought his own ticket and found his own way into the game, it's Jerry Woolman. He's on the outside watching the Eagles play the Super Bowl in 1981, all those years after he destroyed them. And they ask him about everything that happened and Joe must go and all this stuff. And he tried to argue that Kuharik got a bad rap for all of this. He said, I had those financial problems in 1967, and they affected everything. They affected Joe and the players on the team as well as me. Joe never had even a shot because of those problems. It wasn't his fault that things didn't work out. And as he's there at the Super Bowl, as a spectator, talking about this bygone era, Joe Kuharik dies in the hospital during the first half of that Super Bowl. It's eerie. Because just about any way you slice it up, whether you're looking at that Super Bowl in 1981, or you're looking at that day in 1964, when a young kid got his dream of owning the team, he got exactly what he wished for. The result was the same. The Eagles lose. That'll do it for this week's edition of Upon Further Review. If you enjoyed the show, please Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to the show on, five-star ratings do go a long way. And hey, if you know someone who is a football history fan like yourself or a diehard Eagles fan like yourself, Maybe you should send the show their way. I would greatly appreciate it, and I, I think that they would too. So I'm Vince Quinn. You can find me on Twitter at It's Vince Quinn, and I'll talk to you next week on a pond for the review.